Hey, Changemakers, welcome back to the Engage for Good podcast. I'm your host, Allie Murphy. I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving and that you're gearing up for a lovely end of the year and holiday season, whatever holidays you might celebrate. 2023 has been quite a roller coaster for many teams in the corporate social impact space, with moments of triumph and a few speed bumps along the way. Between our community of corporate and nonprofit leaders, I can't tell you the number of organizations that have gone through an org restructure, where leaders are stepping into new territories, maybe managing for the first time, or directors and VPs are now managing teams that they've never led before, organizations that are facing a rise of cancel culture, and so many are dealing with the constant push for bigger and better initiatives despite static budgets and headcount. AKA, there's a lot of challenges that have definitely kept us on our toes this year. But hey, amidst these hurdles, there's also been a surge of innovation that inspires hope for a brighter future. So we've got both sides. In today's episode, I'm excited to introduce you to Kelly Thompson. I stumbled across Kelly's insights through her numerous podcast appearances. I think she's been on about 100 podcasts thus far. And then I joined her leadership book club. With her expertise as a leadership coach, speaker, and author of Closing the Confidence Gap, which I highly recommend, Kelly's here to help us navigate these challenges and give you strategies and tactics that you can implement right away. I've used many of them myself, and they're super helpful. In today's episode, we'll explore how to level up your leadership and transform your role from doer to leader, what the less framework is and how to use it, how to clearly communicate expectations to others and your team, leadership strategies after restructuring, particularly in scenarios where leaders are unfamiliar with their new team's work or are stepping into management for the first time effective coaching methods and recommended questions to guide your team towards success, the role of values in confident leadership, effective delegation, and building a thriving career, strategies for navigating increased workload with constrained resources, and a whole bunch more. And with that, let's get started. Kelly, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Allie. Excited to talk about what we're going to talk about. I'm super excited. I think I've heard you on at least three or four podcasts and of course joined your book club too. So I know we're gonna have a great conversation, but before we dive into any of the content, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Yeah, for sure. Well, you've already done the introduction. So folks know I'm a leadership coach, I'm an author, and I'm a speaker. Uh, but I wasn't always out on my own. I'm actually a corporate veteran. So I grew up in corporate America. I grew up in banking and in finance. I spent some time in sales and then in human resources, leadership development training, even a little bit of time in marketing. And uh, went to go work for a tech company and a consulting company before going off on my own in 2019. So since then, I've really been focusing exclusively on my mission, which is helping women advance to the rooms where decisions are made. But I do work with both genders, and we're going to talk more about what that looks like today. But when I'm not working, um, we're recording this right around Thanksgiving. So my college-age daughter um, should be coming home, <laughs> which we expect to get for probably four to five full hours of her time before then she ditches us to go see all of her friends, which is how that works. <laughs> that sounds about um, right. 
I know, but that's, you know, being an empty nester has really allowed my husband and I to travel. We took a two week, uh, we called it an empty nester moon to Europe. So that's been really awesome to kind of fulfill some of those dreams and, um, you know, get up, go to the gym on time, which is something how I love to start my day. And so when I'm not working, that's what we're thinking about these days. I love it. You and I like to start our days very similarly. I don't actually go to the gym very often. I use the Peloton at home, but that is a great way to start the day. I'm a weights girl. So I like to go, I go to a women's gym and uh, we have like a weightlifting program there. So that's kind of what I'm into. I love it. Okay. So you kind of alluded to this already. You've got a bunch of experience. We're going to cover a variety of different topics based on different conversations I've been having with social impact leaders in our mastermind groups, et cetera. So I want to start with something that came up in one of those groups in our nonprofit mastermind, actually. And a lot of members on both the corporate side and the nonprofit side are going through this. And what's happening is a lot of reorgs. So companies, nonprofits, foundations, whatever it might be, are going through restructuring. And what that means is that some leaders are now leading teams where they've never done the work themselves. And others are stepping into management roles for the first time. So let's start with the the latter of those two. What advice would you give from shifting from an individual contributor to a manager, which can be a very strange shift? It can be. You know, when I was in human resources, and honestly, even as a leader, I remember thinking that like, we would promote people and like Allie would get her brand new shiny manager title. Mm-hmm. And we would think that, you know, she's going to wake up tomorrow and she's going to come to work <laughs> and she's going to know how to coach people. She's going to know how to coach people that used to be her peers. It's not going to be awkward. She's going to know how to give feedback. And we just like thought this magic transformation would happen, but it doesn't. And I think what actually happens, I know one thing I personally struggled with when I made the shift from doer to leader. Yeah, I did have to manage people that used to be my peers. Like that felt weird. But the other thing that felt weird is, you know, when we grow up as doers, our whole lives, we are rewarded gold stars. Oh my gosh, Allie, you're the best. How did you get this done so fast? You're the quickest, you're the smartest, all Mm -hmm. these sorts of things. And so when we get promoted into leadership, all of a sudden it can be a totally um, unexpected mindset shift that, you know, we've kind of confused our who with our do. And what I mean by that (laughs) is that lots of times, like we, especially in corporate America and even in corporate Canada, um, often think that what we do is who we are. And so now all of a sudden we are a leader and we have to start thinking about, oh, my job now is more, um, instead of making the save, it's coaching the save. Instead of doing all the things, it's delegating the things. Instead of being the one that gets all the accolades, it's coaching and delegating to the people that get the accolades. And the thing that becomes really hard, I think in that first shift is all of a sudden, and it's most likely that you were promoted because you were the best at what you did. And now all of a sudden you have to trust other people to do work that you were very good at doing, Mm -hmm. doing it in their way, making mistakes while they are learning to do work that you can do in your sleep and really learning how to step back and embrace that struggle of it all that is watching and being patient with people in their own development. So if I could just really boil that down, it's like, what's the biggest piece of advice that I would give folks who are really shifting from that doer to leader is to think about how are you changing your mindset from doer to leader? Mm -hmm. And what sort of things in your leadership role no longer are going, how is your doing no longer going to serve you in that role? And what can you dump, delegate, and outsource? And be comfortable knowing that other people aren't going to do it the way you did it. So we need to be patient in allowing people to struggle and learn and grow in that process. I love that so much. And I'm thinking of the desktop screensaver that I set 
when I first made that trans. No, it was probably a little, a couple months later, but it said something along the lines of what kind of leader are you was the top of it. And then the bottom under this like inspirational photo was, and are the actions that you're taking showing other people that you are that leader? So if I'm mm-hmm. continuing to do the doing, 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 which honestly, I still struggle with sometimes years later, then I'm not teaching people that I am that leader. So there is this huge mindset shift that has to happen. And I'm curious for those that are like, OK, yeah, I get that in theory, but how do I actually start doing this or what do I tell myself or how do I actually let people struggle What are one or two thoughts that you could share with them? Yeah, you know, and a a quick read is I actually wrote um, uh, an entire article for the Harvard Business Review about this topic. And it says to help your team grow, you need to allow them to struggle. And the first thing that I have folks do is building off of what your screensaver did is I really encourage them to think about what your values are. And values, I know you and I have talked a bit about this, can feel squishy and um, like woo-woo, or it's just marketing language that we put on a website. But the way I define values is they are the things that you stand for. In a way, they become your personal brand. So when I'm working with leaders going through this transition, I ask them just a few questions. And I say, if you overheard your new team talking about you at the water cooler, what are three words that you would hope that they would use to describe you? When you have to give hard news to your team, you know, what are three words that describe how you want to deliver that? When you think about, you know, what must be present to make your work meaningful, what are three words that describe that? And you'll get people that say things like, you know, to answer all those questions, creativity, honesty, transparency, empathy, um, you know, motivation, you know, getting stuff done. I mean, there's no one common set of values, but I want you to think about what is it that you stand for Mm -hmm. as a leader and are, as you said, the actions and the decisions, the way you communicate, the emails that you send, the way people experience you, are they aligned and moving you closer to the type of leader that you want to become? And my hunch is, is that if you're doing all the things and you're not delegating things, you're not coaching, you're not developing, you're not giving good feedback, you're probably not living into some of those values. So I think that just can be helpful that in those moments when you're tempted to keep something and then you can ask yourself, wait a minute, is this moving me closer to the type of leader I want to become? Like that is step one. Step two is I encourage folks to delegate with low stakes items. I never want you to get into a situation where maybe you were the lead on a really big, important client-facing project. And you move into a leadership role. And the first thing you do is delegate the entire huge client facing (laughs) project. Like that's a really high stakes delegation. And my hunch is, is that you probably have told yourself, I can't delegate anything because people make too many mistakes. Well, yeah, that's true. When you're delegating things that are really complicated, high stakes. You have to start your building blocks. Yeah. So instead, as your first move as a leader, I want you to think about what is the lowest stakes thing that you can delegate. So that when people make mistakes, because they will, like the tolerance is really high for those mistakes because it's really low impact, right? We are going to delegate the whole project. Maybe we delegate one thing where they write the client email, but they send it to you first for review just to make sure that it's cool before they send it out. So one, know what you stand for as a leader by leading by your values and asking yourself, do my habits, actions, words, decisions, delegations align with that? And number two, what is that first low stakes thing that I can delegate? Not only to build my confidence as a leader who delegates, but to build my team's confidence that says, oh, Allie's gonna give me stuff and it feels good. And then I get helpful feedback and I can grow along the way. Absolutely. Okay, I wanna come back to the values piece in a little bit. But the other kind of part of this question that I started to ask 
is the flip side. So not individual contributor to manager, but a manager who's maybe already been a manager and is now managing a team or potentially a few people on a team where they've never done the work before. And for some people, I think that's really challenging if you're in the doer mindset. For me, interestingly enough, it was actually one of my favorite things because I couldn't do the thing. I had to coach. I had to rely on. I had to learn and support. And so I'm curious what your thoughts are on that shift. Yeah. You know, I was actually did a whole training session on this for um, a session of leaders. And that was one of the biggest sticking points, because this is where, especially in my my private coaching practice, when I'm coaching um, leaders to really shift into that next level leader of leadership, this is a huge sticking point. Because sometimes in those first couple of promotions, we're a lead, we're a senior lead, we're a manager, we're a senior manager. And then all of a sudden we're a director. And then they give us a team to your point that they mm-hmm. never, we never managed before. And it is a huge, sometimes confidence crisis because you see, we've built our entire leadership career in knowing the work that's done below us. If somebody doesn't have an answer, they can come to us and we can be like, oh, actually, you know what? If I, you pop in this code, then it works because like, you know, you've been with the project since ancient yep. times, <laughs> right? And so now all of a sudden, without even realizing it sometimes, you have built your confidence and to even some extent your identity on being the expert. And I know how com- uncomfortable it feels to all of a sudden have to build your leadership confidence, brand, um, just your sense of empowerment on not being the expert. And that is a huge leap that you um, folks have to really accomplish if they want to move into that next level of leadership role. Because as you get to director, VP, senior VP, CEO, I mean, like, let's be honest, how many CEOs have even done any of the work of their like chiefs when they come into <laughs> a new organization? And so the advice that I really give to folks is, you know, when you are taking on a role in which you don't know the work, which I have done as well, curiosity becomes your biggest asset. Because I really want you to think about the best leader that you've ever worked for. Has the best leader that you have ever worked for been somebody who like knew all the answers and was the expert and knew all the things? It, it might have helped if they had some competence. Right. But when I ask people that question, what they usually say is, oh no, the best leader I've ever worked for is somebody that made me feel seen and heard and valued. And they coached me and they gave me great feedback. Like usually sometimes when somebody says they were an expert, it's like item number 10. And so one of the things that I really focus on with leaders is how do we instead be a better coach? And being a great coach starts with being curious. It's not about having the answers. It's about, you know, helping people discover the answers in themselves. It's not about, you know, um, being the one that rushes in and saves the day. It's about coaching others and facilitating the expertise around you. At the end of the day, if I can boil it down to two things, there's a difference in the energy, you know, Mm -hmm. Being a leader that has all the answers sometimes come in with comes in with like a hero energy. I can do all the things. I can save all the things. I can answer all the questions. But leaders who come in who aren't leading by expertise, but are, you know, leading by a grounded set of values that they define, and maybe they haven't always done the work, they lead with more of a facilitating energy. They recognize that they are there to facilitate the answers. They're there to facilitate growth. They're there to facilitate learning experiences and finding the right solutions. And that energy is totally different. So I think that's a really good um, question that you can ask yourself is if you're in one of those roles where you don't know the work. It's, you know, how am I getting into more of a curious facilitating energy that trusts that the people working for me have the answers? And my job is to bring all of that out in them. And to remove some of the roadblocks so that they can help themselves get there. Mm Mm-hmm. One of the things that both of us have said a little bit about is coaching. And I think a 
big percentage of our community probably knows what that means in this instance, but not everybody. And I'm curious, how would you define this when it comes to leadership? Because you're still a manager or you're still a boss and a coach sounds like something different, but that's not entirely true. And how can leaders practice more of a a coaching style? Yeah, I I love this because the first thing I tell leaders and they always give me a dirty look. And so you can give me a dirty look um, on this (laughs) podcast and I will never see it um, is I say to them, if you are giving advice, you are not coaching. Okay. I'll say that again. If you are giving advice, you are not coaching. If you are giving advice, you are in hero mode. And what you are doing is you are um, absolving people from the growth that comes from struggling and discomfort searching for the answers, struggling through a project, coming up with the answers. So many people think, oh, I'm a great coach because I give, I'm such a good mentor. I give all this advice. I tell people what they should do. And I'm like, no, you're letting their um, personal development and empowerment off the hook, but that they don't have to find the problems on their own. One of the things that, you know, um, and I am so guilty of that. Like, let's just be honest. Like even in corporate America, I'm like, oh, that's a great coach. I'm like, I thought it was a great coach because I'm like, ooh, I can listen to people and really give some good advice. (laughs) And then I went to coaching school and that was the first thing they said is as a coach, and a therapist would learn this too, you never give advice. You learn how to ask great questions. Mm -hmm. So great coaches, the way this would work is as a leader, and this is wonderful, especially if you don't manage, you know, or if you don't have the expertise in what you're managing, somebody might come to you. Like Allie, you might come to me and be like, oh my gosh, this client did this and that client did that. And I don't know what to do. And you know, whatever that is. And there's all this problem and people are upset. You know, a manager who is kind of in hero mode, trying to save the day still, getting their little doing box checked, might jump in and say, okay, Allie, this is what you need to do. You do need to do this, you need to do this, you do this, and think they're a great coach. Mm-hmm. Actually, a great coach is, is going to stand back and they're going to facilitate that. And the questions I might ask you are these. Allie, tell me about your current approach. What else do you think you might try? Allie, have you ever had a situation like this before where you felt like you had two competing priorities? Say more about that. How did you resolve that issue? Is there any skills you used in that issue that you think that you could try here? More great questions that you can ask, especially maybe if somebody is coming to you saying that like, oh my gosh, the world is ending and we got more work piled onto <laughs> us and I can't blah, 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 right? It might just be like, you know what? What do you think you're, mean, you're meant to learn from this? You know, how could this be happening for us? What skills do you think this is trying to teach you and, and you know, how you need to learn? You know, sometimes you're probably thinking to yourself, well, Kelly, what if people really are stumped? And you know what? That happens where people are brand new. They've they've tried a couple of things and they are just literally hitting a wall. One strategy that you can use to stay in coach mode is to say, okay, Allie, you know what? Um, It sounds like you're stumped and you've tried a few things. You ask permission. And I would ask you, Allie, is it okay if maybe I give you a couple of solutions you might consider? So I'm still saying, hey, here's things you could consider. You don't need to do them. And I would get that person's permission and you would probably say, yes, please just tell me the answer. And so I might say, well, you know what? Some people have tried option one. Some people can try option two. And I've seen some people take option three. You know, is one of those options something that feels like it could be something that you'd be interested in trying? And then they are still in the driver's seat. You're still saying, you know what? Actually, I think I might try option three. Great. Why don't you go try that? Let me know how it goes and Mm -hmm. let me know what happens next. So you'll notice in that scenario, I gave no advice. All I did was assume that you have all the expertise. You are capable, you are competent, you've struggled with things before and you know how to find the answers in you. And me as your leader, my job is just to get really curious and facilitative to help you find the answer for yourself. 
Okay, two different things there. One, I love the idea of asking for permission and then the exact way that you phrased it of things to consider. Because it's not just asking for permission and then like, okay, here's what I would do or go try these things. The consider piece, I think, is key there. And number two, I want to play devil's advocate a little bit. And I'm curious what your thought is here. I take far more of a coaching approach and a lot of the people that I connect with do too. That said, some of our timelines for us, it's conference related when it's like the week before conference or week before launch, whatever it might be. For others, it's when they're launching a new campaign or signing a partnership. When your timelines get really short and things need to happen more quickly, I do less coaching and a little bit more advising, we'll call it. Do you think there's a kind of a spectrum of when you can coach and when you need to be more decisive? Ooh, that's good. Can I ask you a question? Mm -hmm. Why do you believe that coaching takes longer? Ooh, this is a good question. Um, I think it takes longer in the sense that if we've got seven things happening and I know one's happening on the main stage and how it needs to be done, in that sense, it's technically faster for me to tell them but I'm seeing you nod your head and I feel like you have a different opinion. (laughs) No, I I don't have a different opinion. You know, I think I would just be really curious, you know, to folks who say, well, I don't have time to coach Mm -hmm. because it takes too long. But I would be really curious if that is the case, is that coaching takes long or that we just don't have um, the patience for people to come up with the answers themselves because we've never given them the opportunity. That being said, it sounds to me like in your example of when you're the one that is guiding the, the on stage, it sounds like perhaps you maybe are still the decision maker in your role. And so one of the things that I would really offer for leaders to consider is to say, who is the decision maker? in this. If I'm the decision maker and we need to make a decision stat about what's on the main stage, I'm going to make the decision. I don't need to delegate that out. If somebody else is genuinely the decision maker about like, where are we going to serve? You know, what's happening over in conference room A or whatever that is, Mm -hmm. then I might default to, hey, what are your plans for, um, you know, the meal, whatever it is that we're serving that day for that event? And when do you plan that gets me by? I think that's a really good description because if it is I am the decision maker, then I'm that's one mode. And if it's the other side of someone else on my team is a decision maker, then it does end up being curiosity and questions instead. Yeah. You know, I, I'm a huge fan of there's always, I, I call it a situational savviness. And I think sometimes people like to put it into black and white of saying, this is when you should coach and this is when you shouldn't. And so what I love to do, and you could even just do this on a post-it note or mentally, if you're driving and listening, is just to draw yourself like a four by four matrix. And like, you know, on the top left, you could put yourself like at the top left, it would be like high decisiveness, like needs to decide now, like whatever that is. And then on the bottom right, you could put, you know, full empowerment or others control, right? What would be the totally opposite of that? And so what I like to have folks do is just plot that in a four box. Okay. So what scenarios require my high decisiveness and no one else's opinion? Okay. And then fill in the box the rest of the way, which is what requires low decisiveness on my part and really high consultative and opinions from others? Because I truly think it's situational. And this is where, you know, we can really um, be less black and white and find those gray areas and then empower Mm -hmm. people in the right places. Okay, I feel like we could go down that rabbit hole forever, but I have a bunch of other things I want to talk about too. So I want to back up. We talked a little bit about values. They are, for some people, some people know what their values are. Some people, it's these frilly words. Sometimes they're written on a corporate website and never paid attention to. Others live them out. 
What role do you think values play in leading confidently and delegating well and in developing a thriving career? Yeah. Well, so I'll just tell you my own story. And so for those of you who maybe have read my book, Closing the Confidence Gap, this won't be new, but you know, I was in my low 30s. Now now I was mid 30s. And, you know, I had followed all the rules. I had checked all the career boxes. I climbed up the corporate ladder. I took jobs because I was like, oh, that'd be a good salary. Like that looks like a good title. People, I, I think I'm happy doing this. That would be a great promotion. Or somebody picked me, which is even like more flattering. Like, <laughs> oh my gosh, I got picked, right? You know, I had been divorced at age 30. I had just called off a wedding. Um, I had switched careers, but we were in the middle of a merger and a buyout. And I remember like literally sitting on my couch just thinking that I had made all the wrong choices in my life and in my career. I thought my picker was broken because I was on the other end of two failed relationships. And honestly, even in my career, my confidence just really suffered because I just really didn't understand sometimes like the value that I brought to the organization. And, you know, one of the things that, and I wish I could tell you it happened overnight that I had like, I called off a wedding and I was in my pit of despair. I woke up just the next day and solved it. I didn't. Like this was like a three to four month process where I just literally felt like I was like floating through the universe in like some sort of massive pity party. And one of the things that I realized was, you know, there was a meme from Hamilton going around and it was um, Hamilton the musical. And it said it was Aaron Burr talking to, or sorry, Alexander Hamilton talking to Aaron Burr. And Alexander Hamilton says to Aaron Burr, he says, if you don't know what you stand for, what will you fall for? And it was Mm. almost like, it was like this massive aha. I was like, oh my God, what have I been falling for? The way I say it now is your values help you know what you stand for. So you won't settle for anything. So much of why the career was giving me burnout and I felt like I was pushing a rock uphill all the time is because I had certain values and it really just helped me discern like, what are those things that must be present? What do I want people to say about me? Like, what are my non-negotiables for my career and in my relationships? And I discovered through a lot of values work that my values were love, respect, creativity, and family. And I just assumed, I think, that other people had those values too. Like, it just never occurred to me that, oh, like I can work for a best place to work, which I did, and they don't have the same values as me. And that's okay. They were a bank that had really strict compliance regulations. And I'm somebody that values creativity. Of course, I was pushing their buttons all day long. (laughs) I valued learning and I worked for an organization that had no learning and development budget. And for those of us that are like in corporate social responsibility roles and, and those sorts of things, I think it's really important for us to know that a good way to determine what a company values is where they spend their money. And so values are those things that we stand for so that we don't settle for anything so that I would stop settling for relationships that were like not even moving me closer to like the life that I wanted to live. They were just crappy, right? You know, values helped me know knew what I stood for in the office so that when I did make a career change, I found an organization that was aligned with them. Values helped me define what I stood for so that at the next organization when I was leading human resources and I had to fire people, I had to roll out mergers, I had to roll out changes and all those sorts of things. But I knew what my values were, love, respect, family, creativity, and learning. I could say, okay, I have to deliver a really hard message today in the town hall. How am I going to deliver this message in a way that is in alignment with my values and does not a way that makes me feel good, no matter maybe how upset those people get? And that's why values are so important is because they are those things that we stand for so that we don't settle for anything. 
I want to segue a little bit because you mentioned this feeling of burnout as you were, we'll call it maybe out of line with your values a little bit. And one of the recent studies from ACCP that really hit me came out and said that I guess 86% of respondents said that their team is facing increased responsibility with flat budgets and flat headcounts. Now, that's not exactly a burnout stat, but it's one that could be leading that direction. And our field is one that is increasingly expected by consumers. It is important to the C-suite and yet is usually really small teams. And I've talked to a lot of leaders who are experiencing this, and it's stressful. How can people in this space continue to move their mission-critical work forward during these challenging times where they're expected to do more with kind of less or at least flat? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Like being in the HR space and the learning and development field, I felt like my my program's budget was cut every year. And mm. it just became like, you got to do more with less. And like everybody just rolls their eyes. It's like, oh, and, <laughs> you know, I really challenge that. I don't think we need to do more with less. I think we need to be more intentional with the time that we have, because, you know, I do give, um, you know, some folks like a framework to really think about, okay, we, yeah, we could walk around here that we say we need to be doing more with less, but like, how about we just be smarter about what we do? And so the first question that we can really ask ourselves is um, maybe we can, you know, learn why we say yes to all the things and all the requests instead of saying no. A great filter that you can ask yourself is to just say, you know what, when we get a request in to do something, or maybe we need to do something because it's propelling our brand in this way in the community, is really ask yourself, is, is this action is what we are about to spend money on in alignment with our values? Does it move us closer to the type of department that we want to become, to the type of brand that we want to become, the type of company that we want to become? I think another question that you can ask yourself is, how um, does this thing that we're saying yes to, does it align with the skill sets and talents of the people on the team? Like, do we have the means to deliver this honestly in the market that we're in? If not, we're probably going to overwork our teams and we don't have budget to outsource it. I think another thing that can be really helpful is to set clear expectations yep. with our like retraining people how to use us, you know, in times like this to say, you know, uh, hey, thank you for your request. Right now, my team is working on a strategic initiative for the CEO. We need to get that completed. Can I talk to you about maybe pushing this project back to Q4? It's really learning how to set those confident boundaries. So just to recap, it's really identifying what is values-based work that's moving us closer to the team, the department, the company we want to become. You know, how can I learn why I'm saying yes when I should be saying no to things? That way I'm not just saying yes to everything. How is this aligned with my talents? And how am I having those really good boundary conversations? Because I don't think doing more, like, you know, doing more in these times is a recipe for burnout. I think it's a call for all of us to be a lot more intentional mm -hmm. about how can we create big impact on small resources. So like, for instance, my own team, I have two people, two and a half. And like my, one of my strategies, honestly, is I want to make a big impact with a small footprint. And so that means with me and my team, we are very intentional about what we say yes to so that what we are solely focused on has the biggest impact. And I think it's really helped shift my mindset, even from when I was in corporate that like, we could do one thing really well that has really good reach versus 10 things super mediocre. And that's been a transformation for me personally in my own business. One of the things that you did is you gave an example of a team working on a project for the CEO and saying no. And what I think you did there is you used a framework that you've taught in the past. 
that I remember learning about from your book. And I would love for you to explain what that framework is, because I think hearing the example, but then also understanding why each piece of it there is there would help listeners kind of create their own. This is how I'm going to say no, potentially. Oh, absolutely. And let me just tell you, just just so you know, like I think sometimes we feel um, bad about pushing back on the CEO, but I just want to give an example of how CEOs work. So I'm the CEO of my business and I gave, I, I was like on a harebrained idea one week. This is how CEOs work, okay? Like, ooh, this would be such a good idea. It'd be so fun. So I emailed my business manager and I was like, hey, this week, can we blah, 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 blah. And you know what she did? She goes, that sounds like a really great idea. Would you like me to set aside project A and project B um, so that I can work on that idea this week. And I was like, of course, I had already forgotten that I had delegated those other things to her. I'm like, <laughs> oh no, please no, don't stop that. But I think sometimes I'm sharing that example, then I'll give you a framework. But I think sometimes we are so afraid to push back on the CEO when honestly, like they're just like me. We get all jazzed about something and we forgot what we told you to do last week. And we just need that gentle and loving reminder to say, great idea. I'm working on your two great ideas from last week. Which order <laughs> would you like these in? And I'm always like, oh, yeah. So anyways, the framework is this is number one. Step one is to thank them for coming to you and making the ask like, for instance, when I was leading training teams, people were like, hey, can you whip together a training for Tuesday next week? And it's Friday. I'm always like, oh, thank you so much for coming to me, right? It's assuming generous intent. Thank you for thinking of me. Thank you for reaching out to me. Thank you for coming to me. The second thing that we want to communicate is what we're working on or what we value, what our priorities are. So this could sound like one of the things that we're working on is to deliver sales training for the sales team that has to be completed by in, you know, in two weeks to meet our sales goals or whatever that is. Step three is tell them what you can't accommodate. So unfortunately, I can't accommodate that quick of a turnaround time because it's important to me that this session is relevant for you. But then we turn that whole thing into like a question, right? That way we're not just saying no. It's like, no, but what would two weeks from Tuesday look like for you? Could we make that work? Because I think all too often we think that we can't push back or we can't make this this collaborative conversation. Lots of times people are just coming to us super excited, only thinking about ourselves. I'm just speaking from my own mindset. <laughs> and we forget like, oh yeah, other people got other stuff too. So that's um, absolutely in the same link that I can include for a download um, that we can share in the show notes. I would love that. And one other thing that I want to point out is we're talking about doing this for higher up. But I would, what I would also say to the people that have maybe newly stepped into a management role or have shifted to managing a different team is that you can share this with your team as well. Because if mm -hmm. you're feeling this way about pushing back or, quote, potentially pushing back on leadership, a lot of your team might feel this way about saying the same thing to you. So I think it's a really good framework to use on both sides and to also have an open conversation around. Yeah. Like, let's just normalize it. I I just like am not buying into this whole like old school patriarchal hierarchical thing where we have to act all perfect all the time. Like I think one of the best things that you can do as a leader, and I know one of the things that I think I did a better job of later on in my career is just being honest with my team and just being like, oh yeah, I forgot to do that. Or yeah, I have to go ask you know the CEO this and I'm feeling really nervous, but here's what I did. It's like, let's just normalize and humanize that we're all yep. just having like this human experience at work. Okay, talking about having this human experiences work and the fact that we are all humans with emotions, et cetera. One of the things that we've talk been talking about a lot internally is this idea of calling people in versus calling out. And so this is kind of on the personal level, but also as we're thinking about conference and content for the year ahead, it's also 
calling corporations in instead of just calling them out and canceling them and figuring out how can we champion a new way forward together. Now, I know you don't work directly in the CSR and social impact space, so it doesn't have to be on a like calling brands in level. But what are your thoughts on how to handle disagreements and call people in instead of calling them out? Yeah, you know, I was so just being totally transparent here based on what we're talking about. I am so not the expert on call in, call out culture. I could name you probably 10 more people you should have on your podcast about how to call <laughs> brands in, call yep. brands out. But here's here's what I can tell you based on what I do know. And I want to go back to this values conversation. I think that this is a really good opportunity that as you think about living your mission and thinking about, you know, when you see someone that you disagree with, or you see someone doing something that you're like, you know, that, that probably wouldn't be how I would do it. Or maybe it just flat out goes against your values. I think you have a couple of choices. I think number one, it's so easy to be like us versus them. Yep. And so what I like to do is when I'm really annoyed with someone and I'm human, of course, I get annoyed with people. Of course, there's people on the internet I disagree with. One of the things that I have to work really hard in doing and saying, you know what, though, I bet this person shares values with me. I mean, let's just be honest. I, I have clients that I know I probably disagree with on politics or whatever it is. But it's like, but wait a minute, like the humanity in that person, like what are those values that I probably share with that individual? And how can I focus on those shared values? Because that way it's not me versus Allie disagreeing on something. It's like, okay, what values and goals do Allie and I share in common? Even though we're opposed somewhere and like, how can we work towards those shared values instead of it being an, you know, us versus me versus you conversation, right? Like we're working towards a common set of shared values. If you don't have a common set of shared values, I think one of the things that you need to ask yourself is to say, you know what, when I look back on this situation in five years, 10 years, you know, maybe call out culture or calling culture is totally different. How do I look back on this situation? Happy that I handled it in a way that aligned with my personal values. And I think that becomes a lot more flexible in our approach versus taking this black and white call in, call out. Did you call them in? Did you call them out? It's like, no, how do we move forward in a way that aligned mm-hmm. with our values? Okay, so I feel like we are we have so many questions that I could ask you, but we're coming towards the end of our time. So I'm going to give you our lightning round and see what your thoughts are. And the first one is what are one or two key behaviors or strategies that help you excel as a leader? Trusting yourself. I think that's one of the things that I wish that I would have done a better job of earlier is just really knowing how to go in and trust myself. You know, as a leader, you're going to get so much well-meaning advice. You should do this. You should do that. Take this job, make that decision. And that's why I always come back to values. It's so important to know what you stand for. It's so important for you to know what your unique talents are, what you've been meant to contribute to the world, to your organization. Because that way, when you get that well-meaning advice, you can go back in and you can trust your gut. Mm -hmm. You know, is my gut, is my intuition giving me a heck yes? or a hell no on this. So trusting yourself, absolutely. How do you prioritize your well-being during the work week? Boundaries and breaks. So I'll just I'll just tell you how I do it. So Mondays, I call it meatless, M-E-E-T, <laughs> meatless Monday. <laughs> I don't do meetings. It's working on my business. It's And I can do that because I'm the boss of my business. I recognize there's some privilege there for those listening. But even when I was in corporate, I always carved out time on Monday mornings for strategic thinking, planning what's happening this week. That was something I could control. I work out every morning. I lift weights every morning. I feel better when I lift weights. I feel like for me, I feel like it's been one of the biggest single confidence boosters. The other thing that I do to take really good care of myself is I schedule 30 minute buffers in between meetings. 
Like very, very rarely will I ever do a back-to-back meeting because Google did a a study on this. It's just (laughs) not healthy. So boundaries, breaks, and lifting weights. I love that. And one of your your points about having kind of a meet a meet free day, or I say a meeting free day. (laughs) Yeah. Is meatless Monday. Oh, that's what you said. Yeah, meatless Monday. Mine is Wednesdays. I do not own the business. I work for somebody else, but that's worked for me for the last two years. I do occasionally have a call on Wednesday, but it is blocked off. And it's more of a, if nothing else works, and this really needs to happen, we add it on a Wednesday. And there are also people, I think I was talking to Kelly with a Y instead of Kelly with an I, who works at Meals on Wheels America. And she was talking about how she and her team did an entire segment on what does well-being look like and what are the practices that would help us thrive. And I don't have the notes in front of me, but I believe a component of that was a meeting-free day or a meeting-free part of a day. Mm -hmm. So it is doable and there are other leaders doing it if that's something listeners are interested in. Yeah, I have clients in corporate. I have one that also does uh, no meeting Wednesdays. And I have um, three clients that come to mind right now that really work hard to protect their Fridays. They feel like Friday is like, for them, it's their recap day, right? It's, It's focused. It doesn't matter what day of the week it is for you. I think it's just really asking yourself, what day would I be in my best and highest use of using that time for focus, strategy, thinking, recovery, and then make that your day. Because I, I have seen it work in corporate as well. And number three, what are you looking forward to in the new year? Um, you know, I, I kind of feeling like a word of the year is emerging for me and it's just the word mission. And it's really just more about like, how is, so talk about intentionality, like how are all of my yeses aligned to my mission of helping women advance to the rooms where decisions are made? That's what I'm really looking forward to is just seeing how that will play out. And now that we're empty nesters, we don't like have to be home for sports anymore. And so I'm just kind of looking forward to saying, you know what, that could really open up some opportunities for my husband and I to travel together, to kind of work from anywhere. And so there's there's some cool things emerging, but that's what comes up. I love it. Well, you mentioned that we're recording just before Thanksgiving. My husband and I are flying out to Nicaragua on Saturday, and we're going to work remotely for a week from there and then vacation for a week. So I highly recommend the remote working. Great idea. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay. And very last question, where can people learn more about you? Yeah, the best place to go is kellyraythompson.com. I'm Kelly with an I-R-A-E. There is some free stuff on my website that you can download. Just click the free button and it has some stuff we talked about today and I know you'll link it in the show notes. But other than that, the two social media places that I hang out the most are Instagram and I'm at forward slash Kelly Ray Thompson. And I'm on LinkedIn at forward slash Kelly Ray Thompson. So that's where I'm at. Awesome. Well, we'll include all of that in the show notes, which you can find at engageforgood.com. I follow Kelly on LinkedIn and she's got tons of different tips. So highly recommend that. Kelly, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. The Engage for Good podcast is produced in partnership with True Story FM, engineering by Pete Wright. Music this week is by Kayla Bethridge and Rex Banner. If your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, we hope you'll consider doing just that for our show. But the best thing that you can do to support Engage for Good is simply to share the show with a friend or colleague. Thank you for listening.